Unfound is brought to you through its supporters at Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube, along with Unfound's gracious advertisers. On February 24th, 2017, Unfound first covered the disappearance of Lola Catherine Fry from Greenwood, Indiana, who went missing on November 14th, 1993. She has still not been found. So today, with more experience and a lot more listeners, we revisit Lola's case with a new opening, summary, and summation, along with the original interview, in the hopes of bringing about a resolution. I'm Ed Densel, and this is Unfound. In preparing for this revisitation episode, and on a side note, you should know, this came about because of a combination of an interview getting pushed to next week, it's Memorial Day week, and the launching of my teachable course is happening this week. These are the reasons for this revisitation episode happening a little earlier in the summer than I could have expected. Anyway, in preparing for this episode, I took suggestions from members of the think tank. I, of course, got some really good ones. But I was able to narrow down the ideas from the members to this one. Due to Lola's disappearance having a combination of themes that have become well-known to all of us since 2017. What are they? Number one, woman disappears during the process of a relationship breakup. Number two, drugs and other shady activity. Number three, a car going missing as well as the person. Number four, failed polygraph tests. And number five, friends of the missing person not being as helpful as you would think they should be. And then on top of all of that, Lola's case has something we haven't encountered too much a corporate conspiracy theory. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Lyonez's website, charlieproject.org. Let's just put this out there to start. Lola Catherine Fry was a stripper. And you know we don't judge such things on Unfound. However, we know that profession comes with a lot of external and internal risk. And Lola experienced that. She was around drugs, and there is a belief they could be a factor in her disappearance. Lola was in a relationship with a guy 15 years older than she was, a man who was possessive and allegedly smacked her around. But according to friends and family, Lola had found a way out and was in the process of moving from Greenwood to Fort Wayne, Indiana, at the time she went missing. So, and the facts of Lola's disappearance are highly in dispute. On November 14th, 1993, one story is that Lola was at a party in which she overdosed and her ex-boyfriend John and others covered it up. However, there's also the story that Lola lived through this and John took her back to his place 
and he alone covered up her death. There is even a third story, which is John's, in which he says Lola was alive when he went to work the next morning, but when John returned, Lola and her car were gone. Whatever story you want to believe, and the truth could be none of those, she was never seen again. There were sightings of Lola's car that never panned out. Search warrants of John's place in 1999 revealed nothing. Much more recently, alleged friends of Lola will not talk about her disappearance. Not one word. We revisit unsolved disappearances on Unfound, and I'm not sure if other podcasts do this or not. We do it because we never forget anyone who has been featured here. We want the families to know that we never forget. And we want to make sure none of you ever forget. Please remember that as you try to answer these three questions during the 2017 interview. Number one, did the party happen at all? Or is it just legend that has become history? Number two, no matter what theory you pick, John has to be involved somehow, right? And number three, why would John or anyone else feel compelled to not make only Lola disappear, but her car too? Lola's family continues to believe there has been a cover-up since 1993. The 2017 guest was Lola's sister, Darlene Pitts. Unfound news. Due to an issue with the URL for my upcoming teachable course, How to Podcast Better Than Anyone, its release has been a wee bit delayed, which is totally fine because like Orson Welles said, I'll serve no teachable course before it's time or something. Next, the newest Unfound Now is viewable for Patreon and YouTube channel members. If you'd like to see and hear what I have to say about the recent disappearance of Shauna Helford, you can sign up at either location. Finally, this revisitation episode is occurring a little earlier this summer than planned due to a confluence of issues beyond my control. But you can certainly expect a long list of new disappearances covered by Unfound during the summer of 2023. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound the sister of Kathy Fry, Darlene Pitts. Darlene, welcome to Unfound. Thank you. Tell the, to be here. Oh, thank you for uh, being here. Tell the listeners a little bit about your sister Kathy, what you remember about her childhood memories, if you could. Well, it's been a lot of years now, and... We, I still have the same memories that just repeat. And Kathy was 28 years old when she came up missing. And before that, she was the youngest of five girls. She was the baby. Um, Mom would call her Lola B. Um, she was really passive growing up. She was very much a passive introvert and was always the quiet one. But Laverne, my older sister, that's 11 months older, was seemed to be her partner in crime and growing up. And... Kathy was always shielded by Laverne, and as she grew up, she was always the quiet one, but when she got into her late teens, she started getting a little bit more boisterous, and she was still quiet even as an adult, but I remember her 
once she started dancing. She started dancing because my sister Laverne was a dancer. And she just enjoyed the dancing part of it and making good money. And Kathy just was so lively. I mean, she was just out there. Everybody loved her. I mean, she just was out there and just made you smile. And her favorite thing that she liked that I can remember so well that we all remember is I had two kids and my sister had two kids and all the, the kids, she just loved kids. And every weekend she would either take my kids or my sister's kids. Her thing was Chi-Chi's and the zoo, Chi-Chi's and the zoo. So all the kids knew if Kathy came by, they, it was, she was going to take them and entertain them. And she wouldn't only take them to the zoo, she would buy them stuff. And she just wanted kids really bad herself. And um, when she came up missing, it was, it was at a time in life where she wanted to quit dancing. And she actually had everything that she wanted, her personal items like her photo albums and her clothes and everything was in her car because she was moving to Fort Wayne to live with my sister Laverne, the one that was dancing with her. And she had decided that she was going to stop dancing and um, she had a, a friend up there that she was going to date that she was interested in. And she was ready to settle down and to get out of that, that profession. So it was really a shocker that, you know, she was making that drastic of a change and for everything to be in her car, for her and her car to come up missing and that are both still missing today. How old were you? You said that uh, she would take your, your kids and your sister's children to Chi-Chi's in the zoo. How old were your kids when this was, was happening? Um, I think my oldest daughter was like seven or eight, and my youngest daughter was five. So they were, they were little, um, and she did it for years. So, I mean, it was her. That was Kathy's thing. She was like trademarked as, as doing that for the kids, and she just loved being around the kids and entertained them. And they always knew that Kathy was going to have money and spoil them. <laughs> um, she did it for years. I mean, she just the whole time that's one thing that we really really missed about her yeah were you surprised that she got into dancing given given that she was so quiet and maybe introverted growing up yeah i, I was really surprised um but laverne laverne was always um, the the leader of the two and, and you know growing up i was in the middle i have four of us are 11 months apart mm-hmm. so like right now um Laverne just turned 55, I'm 54, Carol's 53, and Kathy would be 51 as of yesterday. Right, and her birthday, we want to talk about that. Her birthday was yesterday, right? Yep. And uh, it's hard to think when, you know, on Facebook, when you get those blips of the reminders of what you posted last year. And the one I got yesterday was from when she turned 45, which was really emotional for me for some reason, but... I've been posting that every year since she's been missing and since I joined Facebook in 2010. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's odd that we just keep adding years and there are a lot of years now. Mm-hmm. But in the relationships, in my, uh, we're 11 months apart. So Laverne and Kathy teamed up and then Kim and Carol were always on the team and I was always the referee. So. <laughs> okay. Were there a lot of, uh, Darlene, were there a lot of fights? I mean, a lot to... Well, I was four girls, so yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. It was always, it was always, 
Tim and Laverne. If Tim and Laverne were going at it, then that meant Kathy and Carol were going at it. Because so, Tim was the leader of Carol, and then Laverne was like the leader of Kathy. So, but I was always one that knew when to tame them down so they wouldn't get in trouble by mom and dad. Wow, that's a lot of girls. That's a lot of estrogen in that house, darling. That was a lot of, a lot of fights at times. Yeah, it, 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 it sounds like it. How did your dad handle all those uh, women together? Well, he didn't have to do nothing but look at you, so that was not a big deal. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> but Laverne, she, uh, she always won the fights against Kim. I always felt sorry for Kim. Hmm. So I tried to kind of like side with Kim and Carol because Laverne always won. Right, and the listeners should know that Darlene was was uh, very fortunate uh, to have me talk to Kim at least for a little bit uh, regarding Kathy's disappearance as well. And Darlene, I thank you for that. Uh, I got to talk to her, I guess, for about an hour or something. She was very helpful in putting this episode together. So I thank your sister very much. And Kim, Kim's our book smart person. She she's very very intelligent and is very. Useful. If you need a date and a time, you call Kim. If it happened 30 years ago at 8 o'clock on the 6th, she can tell you it happened 30 years ago on the 6th. Yes, and in talking to her, I can, yes, that's exactly true. The listener should know. In talking to Kim, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, why do you think that Kathy was thinking about changing uh, her life at that time. How long had she been dancing by the time she disappeared? And was there something that happened that you know of maybe in those months before she disappeared that was maybe like, you know what, I'm just going to stop doing this and, and start doing something else? Anything like that? I, I think what, like when she would go to work and she would come over to my house after she got off work, I could tell that she was just burnt out. Mm. And I really think and feel that she was tired of the lifestyle that goes with that, the nightlife, and she was ready to what we call a, you know, a normal life with a, a day job and a family. She wanted a family, and that that lifestyle wasn't providing that for her. No. And I really feel like that was her main goal for wanting to, to get out of it. And she, you know, and it's so sad today because she really was getting out of it. Okay. And that's the saddest part to it. And just so we're clear, the next, the day, November 14th, was the day that she was planning to move to Fort Wayne. She was leaving that morning to go to Fort Wayne. Now, let's, let's talk about somebody else here for a moment so the listeners can understand uh, the rest of what happened. Tell the listeners a little bit about John Riker, what you remember about him, what you knew about him, how they met, you meeting him, your impressions. Well, I only met him one time where I've had an actual communication with him face-to-face, and I'd heard of him. And no, I take that back. Excuse me. There were two times, because I went to his house one time when Kathy was there. But we only went in there to pick up something, because at that point she was living with him. And we stopped there to get something en route to shopping or something. And then after that, Kathy had worked one night, and she had came to my house, and the next morning I was going to leave for work, and... She said that he was going to bring her lunch. And so at home, at, since I was close, my job was close to home, I went home at lunch. And she was awake, and I said, what are you doing? She says, I'm waiting for John to get here to bring me my food. And so about that time, John knocked on the door, and he came in. And Kathy wasn't feeling very good because of her medical issues and, and working. And she was pretty rude to him. And I thought, 
well, she must not feel good. And that she was, Kathy was very, very plain spoken and boisterous at this mm. time in her life. And John kind of, I told him, I said, I apologize that she's not in such good mood. And he said, well, there's a good person in her dying to get out, and I want to help her find that person. And I said, well, John, if you think you're going to tame Kathy, I said, I think you've got a big surprise coming. And that was the last time I spoke to him until after she came up missing. And the day she came up missing, I called him. And I can't remember the exact story he gave, but it was not the same story that he had given my mom and dad or my other sisters. I do remember that. Would you call John Riker, would you, I mean, to, I guess maybe use uh, maybe 21st century terms, would you call him an alpha male? Would you call him a beta male? How would you portray just his overall personality and the guy that he was? Well, what I know of him now, I would call him very dangerous. Dangerous. Mm-hmm. Because he had went into her job a number of times and was violent towards her. Mm. And the, the most violent one was he had came in and grabbed her and was pulling her out the door. And the bouncer had grabbed Kathy from him and put her in the office. And they were for sure that he was going outside to get a gun, so they were preparing for that. And knowing that, I just feel like he was more than capable of taking her life. Right, that w- that would make sense. And when Kathy disappeared, and we're going to get into the night and what happened there, but the night that she, or the, or the morning that she disappeared, whichever it may be, how long it had been since she and John were actually a couple? Had they been broken up for a couple weeks, uh, a month, or? I think maybe it was a couple months. I don't know okay. for sure. Okay. It was long enough to where he was. They had gotten over the, the, the real hard part of the breakup to the point where they were speaking again. So that uh, is one of the other uh, actors in this. Um, in what this disappearance, and I wanted the listeners to know about him because now we're going to talk about uh, the day and night that Kathy disappeared. What can you tell the listeners about what you know happened that evening? And we realize that some of these things, the listeners need to realize that some of these things you didn't find out till many years later. Okay, till 19. 19- yeah. Yes, then 1993. And we didn't find this out till 1999. Okay. And what's sad is we went all those years not even knowing this part. Tell the listeners about what you found out. I'm going to, once again, preface this to the listeners. What Darlene is about to tell all of you, she and her family did not know about in 1993. The family did not know about what she is going to tell all of you until 1999. Darlene, please pass on to the listeners what you found out about that night. Well, we were called to uh, Detective Van's office, and I can't remember who all of us went. I think most of us did. But he had gave us a sheet of paper with these bullet points on it that had, I can't remember the exact listing, but it was a very generic list of uh, what he had found out. And what year was this, 1999? Right. Okay. I'm not sure what month, but okay. what, we, what, what we found, how we found out the details is we found it was public record that when he had done this search to find the information that he had given us the bullet points on, so we dug deeper with what he had given us because we went to public records at that point and got copies of the affidavits 
that he had used to get search warrants. And at that point, once we had pulled those and read them, that's when we found out the details that I'm getting ready to say. There were um, five people. Well, there's John Riker. Then there was a um, three of the Schaefer boys. Then there was two other guys. So I don't want to lose count here. Um, four of the um, four of them were gay. They were. Um, Kathy's hairdresser and my mom's hairdresser, and that was um, Joe Schaefer. It was him, Tim Schaefer, and Jeff Schaefer. They were all three brothers. They were the parents, the ones that owned Schaefer Lake here in Indiana. Okay. They were there, and then those two had their boyfriends there, which is Steve Chafee and Samuel Joris. Okay. So they were all at this um, apartment, and they decided they were all going to go bar hopping. So they go down to the bar around the corner, and supposedly John and Kathy have a few words in there, and they could tell, they said John may have slapped her in there. But at that point, um, the gay guys decided they were going to go down on Massachusetts Avenue and go to the gay club. So that left Kathy, Jeff Schaefer, and John Riker that went back to the apartment at Williamsburg North Apartments. And... And they said that Jeff had provided a mountain of cocaine, which Jeff Schaefer did, which he is now deceased. So, And at that time, the gay guys had come back to the apartment sometime in the wee morning. And they all gave different little versions of this, but the core that is the same is that one of them said that Kathy was in the bathroom and they had heard some kind of noise and she had hit the floor. One said she was, uh, John had her in the shower trying to wake her up. And, but the end result of all their stories was that they had wrapped her in a blanket all but her hair and her toes and pulled her out to the living room floor. And then they had decided that whatever story they were going to say and keep, they made their pack right there. And two of them had carried Kathy and the blanket all but her down to John Riker's car. So it was John Riker and one of, um, I don't know if it was Jeff Schaefer or one of the other ones, guys, but... Two of them left with Kathy in the car, and the one that was related to the big guy at the apartment, he didn't. He came back two hours later. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if John came back to the apartment two hours later with him, but whatever they did with her, at that point, the two of them were together for two hours. And, and after that... And John never came back to the party. John never came back. The party was over, but um, I'm not sure why they all came to that conclusion. Even if she had fallen or OD'd or even accidentally hurting her, they could have taken her to an emergency room and dropped her off. Mm-hmm. I truly believe if she was alive, they would have done that. Mm-hmm. So I can't believe that many people would be wanting to be a witness to a murder mm-hmm. or, or someone dying in front of them. Even with the drug there, they could have dropped her and ran. You know, they didn't have to to stay around to say, here she is, you know. Right. If it was an overdose, then granted, there would be illegal drugs there, but it wouldn't be considered necessarily murder. It would be, uh, unfortunately, a a freakish freakish accident. And not only that, there wouldn't be no proof of foul play. If Kathy was doing drugs, that doesn't mean that you forced her to overdose. True. there was just no reason if there wasn't foul play or something there that was criminal activity, they would have 
they would have chose right because there was too many of them there to all agree to not do right. So that tells me that they all know that something happened that shouldn't have happened. Now, now you found all of this out in 1999, several years later. What did you? Well, what did, did you do? The third bill, 1999. Oh, okay, that's fine. That's fine. I understand that. But for those years, what did you think happened that night regarding Kathy's disappearance? What part of that did you know? And we know probably the part that you didn't know. You didn't, of course, didn't know about her being carried out of there. What did you? What was the extent of what you knew back in 1993? And well, we did know that John failed the polygraph test. Mm-hmm. Because at, on November, it was in November, she came at missing November 13th. By Christmas time, we know now that he was given a polygraph test. So we all knew just as a family that we had talked to him and he had lied to us. So mm-hmm. we knew he was guilty of something because why couldn't he, that next day when we were all calling him, the next two days, why couldn't he tell us all the same story? And he didn't. And so right off the bat, we knew there was a guilt on his part. And the key point to John Riker, and I hope he hears this. I will make sure this gets in his hands, by the way. Okay. He, he never called, no, one time. Here, everybody's calling, saying, you're in love with Kathy. You want to help this good girl come alive and get rid of this bad life that he didn't like. But at the same token, not one time after we called him to say, have you seen Kathy? Not one time did he ever call back and say, did you find her? Never did he call back and say, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to help you search? Do you want me to talk to the police? At no time did he offer any of that within the first 72 hours or within the first month. Okay, so to me, that was an indirect form of admission. Now, we should, the listeners should know, though, that he claims that he did see Kathy that morning. What he did he, what, what did he, yeah, what does he claim happened the night before and then what happened the next morning? What was his story in 1993? He, he said, he told the police that he and Kathy had went to that party and they had left her car at Chi-Chi's. So they left the party, went back to Chi-Chi's, picked up her car, took it to his house. And it, even though that was like wee hours in the morning, at six o'clock in the morning, he gets a call from a job at the bank on Southport Road with a guy named Jimmy Burp that worked for him that was a convicted felon that said that he needed a key to get into the bank at Fifth Third on Southport Road. And so he says he gets up and he goes to that job, and then Kathy calls him and tells him that she's leaving the house with no sleep again and leaving for Fort Wayne, and she left. By the time he got home, he had never seen her after that. All right, and there was no mention of her being carried out the night before. There was no mention of being wrapped up in a blanket, no mention of her collapsing in a bathroom. None of that. You didn't know about any of that. It's a little right. Wow. Right. And regarding him going to help his employees out and seeing her, he failed a polygraph test twice regarding those November stories. November 29th, he failed it the first time. November oh. 29th, 2000, or 1993. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. And, but he failed it two times after that also. And the, the part that he failed on in the affidavit was, do you, did you do something to Lola Catherine Fry? And did you murder Lola Catherine Fry? He failed on both of those. What did you do? What did you and your family do? Uh, what were you doing at the time in your life? Where were you when you found out 
that Kathy was missing? What did your family do at that time in November of 1993? What did the police do as well? Well, my mother is par- was paralyzed on her left side. She had had a stroke when she was 40, and she had a hard time with that. But Kathy and Laverne had taken over the role of mending mom back to, to life because she, when she had the stroke, she was completely paralyzed on that side. So she lived with Laverne for a long time, and Kathy did, and they literally became her caretakers and took really good care of her. And Kathy was, just took over being her mother. And Kathy took really good care of mom. She called her every day. If she wasn't with her, she was on the phone with her. And then my brother, Kathy, took over the role of caring for him. But they were very, very, very close. And mom depended on Kathy. And she just did for so many things. And Kathy knew how to deal with mom because she was depressed about the stroke. By the time Kathy came at missing, mom was functioning in a very full-form capacity of surviving and getting her life back, even being paralyzed. And I, I give that credit to Kathy. And did your family go out and search for Kathy? I mean, did, did you go look for her car? Or? You know, that, that was one of the most disturbing parts. We all did it. We all went as a family. And it got to the point where anytime we got a lead anywhere, we went and looked. Tell us about how your dad handled this, all of this, Darlene. He got to the point to where he, he was just desperate for answers. And the way it feels when you're in this situation is you feel like that person, even though it's been a year or a year and a half, that you feel as a family in your heart that they're crying out to you to help them. And so you always have this feeling that you have to hurry. You have to find them. You've got you've to find them because they need help. It's the most helpless feeling that you can have. So what you do to, to suppress that is you take anything that can get you any type of information. So the psychics at one point started taking advantage of Dad, I feel like. But yeah. he got to the point where for a season there, he was like, we don't have nothing to lose by doing what they say to do or go looking where they go to look. So there were many times that I went with him with no confidence in what they were saying, but at that same token, there were things that they would say that caught all of our attention. Okay, so they would tell us, look for a big red barn and these big boulders and pine trees lined up in a row. Well, when you go to looking for things like that, you'd be amazed. Just like an example would be, you know, you've never seen a red Corvette. All of a sudden, you see a red Corvette, and then all of a sudden, you see red Corvettes everywhere. Well, we started finding barns and pine trees and boulder rocks just about anywhere and everywhere. And so then they, one told them said that she would be tied up in a plastic bag and it would be tied with, like, bone cords on the end of it. So we're out, and we found some pine trees and a boulder rock, and, and we're all out there, and we're thinking, okay, this is a wild goose chase. Then all of a sudden, guess what we find? A plastic bag that's buried, and the only thing we can see that it has a cord tied around the end of the bag. So coincidental or not, it was there. So we're all convinced, oh, my God, they've told us the truth. And so we stayed out there, and we ended up calling the sheriff. It was over off of Oleo Road towards um, McCordsville. And uh, so we're all out there believing that, you know, she's in there. 
And so you're sitting out there, and by this time you're believing it because all the little signs they've given you. And we're don't know whether to grieve, be your stomach's hurting. And then by the time the police are done, it's nothing. And it wasn't her. So we went through all that emotional anguish. And each and every time we went on a search, it would it would be in the back of your mind. What if she's here? How am I going to feel if she's here? Yeah. But then you think if she's not here, you're going to feel the same way you did prior to that. The emotional roller coaster that goes with every single search is the thing that I think that people don't understand and couldn't understand unless you're doing the searching. And you, when you start believing that you're really looking for her and it's really her that might be there, that, that's a feeling. That's just. And then when she's not there, you don't want to find her dead because hmm. that's tragic. But not finding her at all is just another form of tragedy. Yeah, it's it's like a no-win situation at all. Yeah, so I, I, I've been on a lot, a lot, a lot of searches, and I don't want to do it again. Did the police search? I mean, you were searching, and you got the police to come out, but they were doing their own searching. Didn't they search a gravel pit or, you know, some of these gravel pits yeah. that have water in them? And There were, these, these were family searches. Those weren't the state police searches. But I can tell you, to the police defense, there were many searches that we went on, and they knew they were wild goose chases. And I think they came just to comfort us. So I want to give credit, because those police that came out to Oleo Road that day, they were so caring. And the, the Johnson County Sheriff, they have been extraordinarily good. And they're just there's so many good law enforcement out there that try to just, even though they knew that we were probably running a wild goose chase out of desperation. They helped. And the state police, now they they wouldn't tell us where they did their searches, but uh, there were times we found out they did do searches through, like, um, down in Hope, Indiana. I had went down there because Jeff Schaefer, um, he was alive, and I wanted to go talk to him. And But when I drove up to his house, he had no trespassing signs on every tree, two on his front door and two on his back door. I mean, the guy didn't want you on his property, so I was a little leery about even knocking on his door. But when I did, he didn't answer, but his neighbor was outside. And I said, well, I was wanted to talk to him. He said, what you need him for? And this was like a real long-haired, bearded guy. And when was this? What year would this have been, do you think? Um, this has been, oh, I've had Elijah. I've got to get my dates. I'm, telling you, I'm not good at dates. Would have been what right after she disappeared, or a couple of years after, or? Now this was okay. Let me get my 2006. I got my grandson, so it was probably 2005. Okay. Was when that happened, and I talked to the neighbor, and the neighbor said, "Well, the police, the state police, brought down the crime lab truck, and we're out here searching all these different lakes and ponds and stuff." He, but he told me that they didn't search the one right across the street, and. So I called Detective Ann and said, you know, the guy said you guys didn't search that one. So I know they searched that area. So I know the house that um, that house was of interest to them because they had the crime van there. But the part which we can fast forward that bothers me about that, because when I went back um, three years ago, that's when the Mennonites had bought that house. They sold just the house, not the property around it, but just the house property. And... 
I had went back there. And who's and, who, and just so the listeners are clear, whose house did this used to be? This is Jeff Schaefer. Okay. Three brothers, but it was the only straight brother that brought the coat to the party. So, and about three years ago, I went back to the house because I thought, well, I'll go try to talk to him again. And when I got there, there were no, all the trespassing signs were taken down. And um, so I got out and I knocked on the door. And I think they were sleeping, but finally the guy came to the door and it was a Mennonite guy and his wife and his children. Super nice. They told me they had bought the house. And I said, well, I have a very odd request. And um, I said, and I told him about Jeff Schaefer and he knew about him. He, he uh, that the owner of the house bought the house from the family. And he, so he said, won't you come in? And so I went in. The first thing I noticed was the kitchen and in the kitchen was a hand dug cellar. Okay, I, I find that extremely odd, but it seems like the police don't find it odd. I mean, how many people dig a hole in a kitchen floor and call it a cellar right in the middle of the kitchen? And it wasn't the, the current owners that did this. This was definitely Jeff Schaefer, the previous owner, who did this. Yes. Hmm. So just that oddity in itself, and knowing that I'd been there previously with all those no trespassing signs, I'm still convinced that's a possible location of Kathy. Would this this residence, would this have been where the party was held in 1993? No, the party was held at Williamsburg North Apartments okay. off of Benford Boulevard. Okay, but you believe there's a possibility that somehow Kathy might have ended up in that house? Yes, hmm. I do. Because who else would dig a cellar in their kitchen floor? And it was a big hole with handmade steps that went down in the bottom of it. But the, the family that lived there, you know, they, we brought out the search dogs. And we also brought out sonar equipment from professionals. And the dog and the sonar both hit on the slab of the back porch that was um, that was built. So at that point, the, the, the owner of the home said, we'll dig wherever you want to dig. You just bring the equipment. He said, I have the bulldozer, but we'll just dig wherever you want to dig. And, you know, it's, it's hard because the dog hit on one spot and the sonar hit on another and I couldn't very well ask this owner to dig up his whole back porch in his entire backyard. Yeah. So instead of, this is what I regret, instead of digging by the cellar where the cellar was dug, we stayed where the sonar hit, and which was the back porch. So we started digging beside the back porch and under it, the back porch being just a slab of cement. And the regret is this. Instead of anything being there, those were just very deep-rooted roots of a tree. And I feel confident. And But he kept digging and he kept digging. But I didn't want to tell him, okay, I want to dig over there where the cellar is at. Because I didn't want to tell him, I want you to destroy your whole backyard and your half of your house. Yeah. So by the time it started getting dark, and I just told him, I said, we have to stop. And that was hmm. the last search that I've done because... That was anguish for me because I didn't know if I didn't tell him the right, you know, maybe I should have told him 10 foot more that way. I didn't know where to yeah. tell him or how to tell him to do it because the part I wanted him to go to was the back side of the porch that connected to the house where the cellar was at. Or the yeah. hand dug cellar, I should say. Back in, anyway, back in 1993, how did the media treat 
Kathy's disappearance. Well, anytime they needed a story, it was a good one. And Kathy was not considered a college student that came up missing. She wasn't a Jill Beerman or a Lawrence Beer, or she wasn't classified as that. She was classified as a dancer slash stripper. And at that time, they this is where how far we've come as far as missing persons. At that time, we were told to be quiet because we didn't want to give anything away to run anybody off that was guilty or scared. You know how nowadays they put your face on America's Most Wanted to find you. Yes. But back then, it's like we don't tell anything. So we kept it quiet because we were thought we were supposed to keep it quiet. So we didn't hit the media until a, a time after. I'm not sure how long after, but it didn't hit the media right off. So you feel that that her disappearance was not treated the same way as other people's would have been because of her lifestyle, because of her profession? Well, you know, I can safely say that I didn't say that, but mm-hmm. an FBI contact did say that. Okay. And he he, he apologized for it. Uh, the, the state police and those involved, he said, you know, it's just people can dis- disappear if they want. And to take an adult serious, because back then there wasn't the Megan's Law or the Molly Tatillo Law. It was, if you want to come up missing, you just go away. And so they they could justify not looking for her by saying maybe she just didn't want to be here. She left. Yeah. But there's laws now on the books that where they do respond. But back then, there wasn't. And there was no... At that time, there was no proof other than the fact that we all knew something was wrong because we knew her behavior. So we know now, looking back, that the state police was giving him a polygraph test that same month. So they knew, but they just didn't let us know that they knew. All right. Yeah, the police, they're not going to—they're only going to tell you what they want to tell you. They're not going to tell you everything. Uh, Darlene, there is another side to this story, though. And I know that we've talked about this part, so the listeners have not heard everything yet. What can you tell the listeners about the lawsuit that Kathy was involved in? And how does how do you think this relates possibly to her disappearance? Okay. Kathy was one of the very first cases to sue Dow Croning breast implants. That's when it was made with the silicone and not the the water that they're made from now. The saline, yes. It was Kathy, the saline. So Kathy and two other girls were one of the very first lawsuits to be filed against not only the, the club that she worked at, but Dow Croning and the actual uh, doctor that did the plastic surgery. So she had lawsuits against all three of them. And just coincidental, um, Charles E. Youth III is the, the doctor that did this. She was due to give a deposition uh, against him on paper it was the very next day even though that was the 14th which was on a sunday then they corrected it and in the paperwork that we have that said that she was due to give it on monday the 15th so they corrected the date and she never made it to that deposition she disappeared right before she was supposed to give her deposition in this case against the the club owners where she was dancing uh, a doctor who had performed the surgery and this huge corporation in the United States. Yeah. How long had this lawsuit been going on? Do you remember? Was it a 
a long time, but it had been going on for a year or six months. Do you have any recollection of that? Okay, but each one of those entities that you're, you're mentioning there, the club owner, mm-hmm. Dow Crane, and the doctor, those are three separate lawsuits. Only the lawsuit that she was doing the deposition on that Monday was only for Charles E. Hughes. Okay, the doctor, the plastic surgeon. Okay. She had, already, she had already given one about Brad Hurst, the owner of um, Brad's Gold Club at the time, and she had already given a deposition to Dow Croning. So those were already completed because I have copies of those. So the only deposition that she missed was the one for the doctor. And now retired as of November 2015. Okay. And how many other women do you remember? Was it a large group of women or was it three or four that were involved in this lawsuit? I'm sure that there were other lawsuits going on across the United States, but within this location in Indiana, how many do you believe were involved in this? Well, Kathy and only two other dancers were the ones on this case that I'm aware of. And what happened when Kathy disappeared? What happened to the lawsuit? What did these other women do? What happened regarding all of that? Well, in the paperwork, you know, the <laughs> the doctor kept filing to dismiss it because she was a no-show, even though her attorneys that were representing her kept sending letters, well, the fact that she's legally missing, we need to give her time to be found. And so they, they extended it as much as they possibly could. But the doctor turned around and he countersued her knowing that she was missing and won. So I don't know how you lose a lawsuit if you're not here and win one if you're not here. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure how that, that works out, but he did win. But what happened was over a period of time, the two other girls that were on the lawsuit they settled, and the reason that I was told that they were they settled for a very small amount was because they thought if they followed through with this lawsuit that they would be the ones missing next. Well, that's certainly some curious timing. I, I you know, and you, what do you think about that? What is your, you know, reaction to all of this? And what did you think when they said that? Did you believe it? Did you not believe it? Or how did you feel about that? Well, I believed it. The part that uh, is mine that I can't piece together is John Riker was at the strip club all the time. He knew everybody there. He was a regular. So it's not like he didn't know the doctor because the doctor was there. I mean, they were all in the, in the same, uh, what do you want to call it? They were all there. They all knew each other. Now, how they connect, I don't know. But I, I can tell you, I think it's, too coincidental that you have this one place with these, the, all, everybody that has anything to do with Kathy are in the same location. We just don't have enough to connect the dots. Okay. And I don't. And but, you, know, you have to go where the evidence says, and the evidence says that it's John Riker because of the affidavits. Hmm. And I do know the police did search, you know, Hope, Indiana, so they believe that. So hope they're right. Because otherwise, we've let this doctor go free, and he's never even been questioned. I don't think. And that wasn't the only allegation. You, we had talked about something about a fake insurance company or something. I mean, do you feel comfortable talking about that? To what extent do you know anything about that? Well, the part that I know is from what I read, because in her medical record, it said that she had done this because she had been pregnant. She wasn't pregnant. 
But then in the notes from Dr. Charles E. Youth III, he says she did it to, for cosmetic reasons. Okay, so why would you put in her medical records unless you were filing it with an insurance company that it was a medical reason? Okay, and oh, we were told that the, the owner of the club was paying cash for these, these operations and stuff to take place. But that's who I think was filing for the insurance. So I, I don't know how that plays into this. I just know that if they, there was no reason to lie in her medical records if she did it for cosmetic reasons. The insurance doesn't pay for cosmetic breast implants. That's that's exactly right. And so you start wondering: Is it possible that the do doctors were double dipping? They I, were getting paid cash to get this done, and then also filing an insurance claim to get paid. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we truly believe what happened because there was um, there was. We even tried to find the name of the insurance company for the the licensing board for the state. And I don't remember what was found on it. I just don't remember. It's been so long ago. But there again, you still have to figure out how that relates to the people that were with her that night. Yeah. Okay. But they all knew each other. That I'm sure of. The doctor knew of John Riker, and John Riker knew Brad Hurst, and Brad Hurst. I mean, they are all tied together. They're all on one string. Just how they connect on that string, I don't know. Did the owner of this this Brad guy who owned the strip club or the doctor ever issue any sympathy for Kathy's disappearance? Ever contact your family and said, I say, sorry to hear about her disappearing. Anything we can do to help anything like that from them? I know you got nothing from John Riker. Anything from any of them? None. Zero. Zero. Now, here's something else the listeners might find interesting. Uh, Kathy had a lawyer uh, in this lawsuit. What did the lawyer say about her disappearance and how it related to the lawsuit? Well, Dad had paid to get Kathy's uh, legal filing from his office. I don't want to mention his name. Okay, fine. That's fine. He said, he told my sister, and I don't know if you want to use foul language on here, he said... You need to go get that SOB Brad Hurst because he's killed her and done something with her. Yeah, just so the listeners, once again, what the lawyer in this lawsuit said to your sister is that he believes that Kathy disappeared because of the lawsuit. Not necessarily because of John Riker, because of a, a drug overdose or something like that, but that was something that happened to her because of this lawsuit that she had against these doctors. That's what her lawyer said. <laughs> Is that he firmly believes that. He'll tell you that to this day. He'll tell you that. But he, he'll tell you, you know, that's his, his thought. Wow. I don't think that he's, uh, you know, exaggerating, you know, what he's thinking. I, I, I'd have to believe that he believes that. I mean, why say it otherwise? He does, and I can tell you I've had contact with that firm, and actually uh, one of the attorneys there is a very, very, very dear friend of mine, and They've, they've helped me throughout the years on other things that he's definitely got the right heart. So he truly did care about Kathy. So mm -hmm. to say that, he does definitely believe it. So, I, you know, and for Brad Hurstby and, and this doctor and this cahoots with this, and there were over 70 girls at that time that had had that surgery done by Dr. Charles E. Hughes, the third. And after 70, when it got up to 77, he gave it to another 
surgeon doctor that I can't think of his name. That now for some reason he just thought seventy girls were enough, I guess. Mm. In total, and the the guy owns two clubs. It wasn't just Brad's Go Club; he owned the Brass Flamingo also. Uh, and we should maybe explain the kind of problems because this, the way I look at it, from what I know. This probably was going to be a big money lawsuit because Kathy was really suffering from some things from having those implants done. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit, you know, about how she was suffering uh, from the surgery that she had? Well, I know she kept having to get um, have surgery on her breast just to make them comfortable, as they could, because whatever was in that silicone was stretching her her skin, it was, well, it was shrinking it to the point where her skin was, her, her skin was literally pulling because it was tightening. Mm-hmm. So I guess it'd be shrinking, not, so that's where her pain was coming in. That's how she explained it to me, is that she hurt all the time because whatever was in that silicone was drawing her skin and pulling her skin. Do you know how long she had had those implants before she disappeared? Was it maybe five years or three years, five years, seven years? Any idea? Oh, I, I can't even guess at that. I know she had them for a long time. Okay. And she had even considered getting them taken out. And I'm not sure why she didn't at that time other than, you know, she was under contract with that owner of that club. Okay. That she had to do. So when he would pay for those, they would have to dance for him for so long and couldn't dance at any other club. They signed a contract oh. with him. Oh, so that's how that works. I did not know that. Do you believe, and we had to, once again, if you feel comfortable talking about this, this pain that Kathy was in all the time from this, from these implants, do you believe that that could have led to the drugs that she did? I do believe that. I do believe that. As a way to kind of dull the pain. And, of course, back then, this was the days before, of course, stronger pain medication. We know that there's a huge opioid addiction problem in the United States. But she might have been using the cocaine or whatever uh, to kind of numb the pain that she had from these surgeries and this pain. And that's why the lawsuit was going on. I think that and, and the lifestyle. I think the lifestyle promoted drugs. Yeah. I'm sure it did. And, and to Kathy, for her, to, she was such an introvert. I, I asked her, I said, Kathy, how'd you get up the courage to, to do that and to get up there and to dance as quiet as you are? And she just told me. And to her defense, you know, I was kind of glad she couldn't do it sober, you know, but she said I just drank enough drinks until I got the courage to do it. Yeah. And so at the first time she danced, she, I took it that she had drank a little and get the mm. courage to do it. And so mm. I know that's how she started. Okay, let's let's touch upon maybe we could call these a, a few miscellaneous things uh, that that have gone on with this case. Some things that you have been personally involved in, maybe some other things. Uh, going back to 1993, you said how one of these gay guys was your was Kathy's hairdresser. He was also your mother's hairdresser so this this guy who was at this party on that saturday night ended up doing your mother's hair probably not long after that he never said anything about that night did he to your mother 
No, but he was the one that was the most distraught, and we knew that even from a distance. And so mm-hmm. we never had access to to get to him, other than we had heard that he was upset and that John Rykood went to his place of business, and the people that were working there said that it was obvious that he was upset and that mm-hmm. John was yelling at him. And, and this was shortly after Kathy disappeared. Right. That's Joe Schaefer. Okay. And Joe Schaefer, he is not with us anymore. He has died since then, correct? Yeah, he, he was the first one to die. I believe he died from AIDS. Okay. And then... Does that surprise you? That I mean, obviously, the way I understand hairdressers is, you know, women and men, you know, find someone that they like and they go back to that person time, you know, every month or every week or whatever, and you get to really know that person. Is it a surprise to you that he would keep his mouth shut about something like that. Was, was, you yeah. didn't find that out to 1999. Is that shocking to you? I, I find it odd that him and his brother, Jeff, the one that supplied the cocaine that night, both were on their deathbeds and didn't confess it. I find that extremely odd. Because even if Tim, their third brother, was still alive, you still realize at the point that when you're on your last breath that that's the only time you're going to be able to make it right. So I find it very odd that neither one of them admitted to anything, especially because I know Joe cared about Kathy. Right. I, I agree with you. I, I think that's, that's very, very odd. Regarding what happened in 1999, when you found out all this additional information, what was it that got those affidavits started like six or seven years after Kathy disappeared? Okay, well, the Detective Van stated that he was new to the case, and he had fresh eyes, and he just started investigating. But he found this out really quick. But at that same time in 1999 is when the state excise police were getting busted for um, having uh, inappropriate relations with the dancers at the club. And there was a couple people that gave a tip that um, the state police there were the state excise police had been having those ongoing relations with the dancers, even back when Kathy was there. So we don't know what prompted him to find this information so fast, but he mm-hmm. found it fast. And you had told me something about one of the Schaefer brothers had been, was subpoenaed, I guess, to go give his testimony or something regarding this affidavit. What did he say before he left to go give his testimony? And this is when the last search I went on at that Mennonite house. I went and met all the owners of Schaefer Lake, which are two brothers and two sisters, and the mom and dad to the three boys that were there with Kathy that night. So I met all of them because we had to get signatures to do the search that we did on the property. And other than the parents, none of the three, the two aunts or the uncle, knew anything about Kathy missing. I find that odd. It can but then I went to the mom and dad's house of um, Tim Schaefer, which was the only living brother. And when I got there and I told them who I was, the mother sat, they were outside, and the mother just sat there and cried the entire time. And the dad stood up and he was talking and said, you know, he was just really stressed about it when he had to take Tim to the grand jury to testify. But on the way there, Tim told him, said, Dad, take my car keys and my wallet because I'm going to be gone for a long time. 
So at that point, that to me was an indirect admission of some form of guilt of something. Yeah. And he said this and way it, back in 1999. It was all these years later that the father was recounting this conversation. Yes. Okay. Yeah, he thought his son was going to jail, so it traumatized him, so he remembered. Oh, my. Oh my. And, at, and at that time, the son pulls up, which I met for the very first time in all these years, and he tried to act like he was just too emotional to talk or to be there. Then he came off with this, you know, the spirits told me I was going to run into you and um, that I was going to have to talk to you. And I kind of looked at him and I, I knew he was putting on a show. You could tell he was acting. And I said, well, Tim, I said, just tell the truth on what happened that night. And I said, just give me that much. And then he started into this crying and throwing a fit and like, you know, I just don't know what to say kind of thing. And he couldn't remember. And I said, well, why don't you ask those spirits that you keep talking to to tell you where she's at? Because you obviously said they're telling you I'm going to be here. And I said, so you need to calm down and just tell me the story on what happened that night. And he wouldn't do it. He would not do it. So do you have any like suspicions about this? Do you think that he's embarrassed? Do you think he's being blackmail or extorted? Do you think that he's fears for his life? Um, what what well, did you know, I, what I, did I, the I, parents do? What did what, what did the parents do when you were standing there having this conversation and, and keeping in mind that the father just admitted moments before that that what his son had said way back in 1999? Yeah, my friend Patty Bishop, that you know, she was there with me. She has a stepdaughter that's still missing, and you know, we all heard it. But after he got done throwing his little temper tantrum about why he couldn't tell us what happened, you know, the dad and the mom by this time they've already got two sons that are deceased and this one is acting like he's an emotional basket case so they're feeling sorry for him at this time mm. but at that time they shut down and mm. he said well go tell your detective to search that gravel pit and i'm like well why why do you why do you want to tell me that gravel pit you can call detective anna tell him the gravel pit and but i did repeat it to the detective but the, again they're if the guy's that upset about living with this wouldn't you think he would talk? And mm -hmm. why is he not talking? And, I, and you know, we're not supposed to say this to him, but I gave him this out. I said, Tim, if something happened to her that night, just blame it on the two dead guys. Yeah. Okay, what do you got to lose? I said, so I gave him an out thinking that might make him confess. And nothing. I, I probably shouldn't say that to him, but what do we got to lose? Yeah, this you have nothing to lose. Justice. I agree. You know, this is, there is no justice served here now. Yeah. None. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you are not the only the the first family member to express that on this program. What was the result of that grand jury that that affidavit caused back in 1999-2000? What happened there? It was stated that since these guys did not testify on the witness stand, even though they were under oath, that because they could not tell that Kathy was not breathing, even though they wrapped her up like she was dead, because they would not say that she was dead, and because that meant that there was possible life in her, they could not indict them. Wow. If they would have said under oath that she was dead when they wrapped her, they would have indicted somebody in this. So what the so the story that John Riker and these other guys are trying to sell is that okay something happened in that bathroom 
Yes, we took her out. We wrapped her in a blanket because we wanted her to be warm, but she was still breathing. And their story is John really did take her home, and then she just still got up the next morning and left. That's the story that they're sticking right. to. Right. Well, that's the story John sticking to. Yes. They didn't stick to that. They said that she was wrapped in a blanket. But, you know, improperly disposing of a corpse, hmm. well, it may be a bigger felony now, but back then they could have still gotten off doing that. Even if they would have said that she was dead and they improperly disposed of her. You know, they could have still said that and not got life in prison if there was no mm-hmm. foul play. If she had overdosed and you just freaked out because she had drugs in her house, you still think they would have told the truth if it was just that. So that, again, makes me think there was more foul play to this. I, I agree with you. And and so if anybody's out there is wondering why these guys can go to get subpoenaed for the, with these affidavits, go into a grand jury, and then walk away scot-free, Darlene just explained to you why that is the case. And 18 years later, I guess some of them are now dead, but the ones that are still living are still walking around free. That's that's how the how it was decided way back when. There's still enough of them living that the truth could be very easily found if 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 the right people would get them to talk. I, I, I agree with you. You've had also some experience with private and de- private detectives in this case. Yes, uh, uh, Don Campbell was a retired IMPD homicide mm. detective. Uh, him and his wife found out more than anybody that has found out on this case. That's how we knew to go to Hope, Indiana, is because of them. Uh, how did this disappearance uh, affect your family, Darlene? Well... Everyone deals with everything, you know, at peace. I don't know if it. Each one of us have our own way of dealing with it. And some have not dealt with it very well, and some still don't deal with it very well. I deal with it because I believe in God, and the faith that I have is that God knows where she's at. And in his time, she'll come back when it's his time. So that is my comfort. And mm-hmm. that's how I deal with it. That's how I accept it, because I know there's a bigger picture here. But I have a... Mm-hmm. And each one of us deal with it separately, and and we don't always agree. And one thinks you should say this one, and one thinks you shouldn't say this one. And, you know, so you get this... It turned out to be just a lot of... I don't even know how to say it, just... You don't agree. You just yeah. don't agree on what you should or should not do. Then you get to the point where, why not? What do we lose? You know? And so, I don't know. You add this on top of things that take place in your life anyways. My life's pretty calm compared to my sister, some of the stuff they have to go through and that they are going through. Mm-hmm. And so because they are so burdened with the tragedies that are happening to them, they just can't cope with this anymore. How did, I, I, can, I can say that because I won't go on another search. I'm not going to go dig again. I'm not going to go help dig again. I'm, I'll go if the police are doing it or if someone else is doing it, but I'm not doing it. Because I can't stand the thought ever again digging in a ground with the shovel thinking, I'm going to find a person. 
Yeah. How did this affect your parents? What, what, how did they handle it? I mean, I know it had to be devastating, but um, you know, what did they do uh, emotionally? How did they handle it? How did they deal with it? Um, Mom cried every morning. She just cried every morning, every holiday. She, she cried a lot, just as I would if it was one of my kids. Mm-hmm. And I have adult kids now, and and they're older than 28, and I cannot fathom not being able to find them. And so now I understand why she cried every day, to the point to where, of course, it got on Dad's nerves, and he just got desensitized to it, and so they ended up getting a divorce. And I feel like the divorce probably should have happened before this, but at the same token, it took its toll. Yeah. And but mom left and went to Biloxi, Mississippi and got married again and she her last few years she made the best of them because she was miserable for so long. She finally came to grips with it in a manner that she could cope. But she never ever didn't think about Kathy. She always thought about her. And your dad? And that's the, and your dad? Hey. Same thing. And, you know, the the thing they both stressed, and this was disappointing for all of us, is they said they both expressed that they did not want to die not knowing. They wanted to know before they died. Mm-hmm. So that made it hard on us. Yeah. Because we, we knew how bad they wanted to know. But I can still go back and relate that to if it was my kid. I don't know how I would hold. I, 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 they held up pretty good now that I'm a parent, that I have adult kids, you know. I think they did really extraordinarily yeah. good. Right. I mean, mom, mom kept wrapping presents for years for Christmas, and then they got all of Kathy's stuff, and Dad had put it um, in his attic and not realizing. I mean, you don't know this kind of thing unless it's brought to your attention. He went to go get the bag of clothes that he had of hers, and they were dry rotted, and it devastated him. It devastated mm-hmm. me that he mm-hmm. kept them like that, and that had happened because it it was a horrible feeling. Mm-hmm. Which he would have, he didn't think when he got them to, if he wanted to keep them, that he had to preserve them in a in a, in a fashion that would preserve them. You don't think that. You just think you're going to find the person. Because he wasn't thinking he was taking her stuff to store it forever. He's just going to hold it until she got back. Yeah. So with that, that was a horrible feeling. Darlene, what do you think happened to your sister, Kathy? Well, I, I think... I ask this of all of the guests, family members who come on this show. I think I have a responsibility to to give them an opportunity just to answer that, that point-blank question. What do you think happened? Well, I think this. There's still John Riker. There's still Tim Schaefer. There's still Steve Chafee, and there's still Samuel Jores. They, and Dr. Hughes and Brad Hurst. If we could put them all in the room and make them talk, we'd know what happened to her. Mm-hmm. That I'm, I'm, and using this loggered up thing, I don't think should be a choice. If you were with someone and they were the last ones that were with you, they should be forced to, to speak. And so I, those, those people that I just mentioned, 
they know where she's at. So I know that every if, if anybody listens to this, and you know Dr. Charles E. III or John Riker with Riker paintings, those two, or, or Brad Hurst, those three definitely know where she's at. I think that's something very good that you just told the listeners. I think it's very appropriate that listeners and the average person out there needs to know that there are people like those guys among us still walking around free who may be suspects or even or at least know something that they have their freedom and still Kathy is nowhere to be found. It's not right. Exactly. It's not right. Darlene, uh, anything else you would like to say before we end this interview? No, I think that's it. I'm hoping that listeners, uh, not just in the Indiana area, but anywhere else who may know these guys, may know something about anything. Uh, We didn't even talk about how Kathy's car to this day is still missing. It's a 1990, 1990 Mitsubishi. It's a red and black Eclipse with all of her possessions in it. Anything like that raises any sort of memory going back to that time. I'm hoping that a listener uh, will speak up. With the license plate Lola. With the license plate Lola, yes. L-O-L-A. Darlene, I deeply appreciate it. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Unfound. Thank you, sir. And that was my February 2017 interview with Darlene Pitts, sister of Lola Catherine Fry. I thank Darlene for appearing back then, and I've spoken to her many times since, including just a few days ago, to alert her of this episode coming out. As you've heard me say quite a bit over the last couple of years, disappearances are about people, not circumstances. Meaning you tell me everything about a person, relationships, education, addictions or lack thereof, status of mental health status of physical health, financial situation. If I know all of that, I can make a pretty good prediction as to why that person went missing. Are the circumstances important? Of course. They could be instrumental in finding missing people. However, there is no guarantee. Yet, when you want to look at disappearances as a whole and learn why they occur... Because understanding the why can help us bring down the rate at which disappearances happen, focusing on the missing people themselves is much more helpful than looking at circumstances. So if you're out there thinking, wow, I don't know what to believe regarding Lola's disappearance, the party, John Riker, the friends, and how they've acted the past 30 years, if you're feeling overwhelmed, I would recommend you simplify everything by concentrating on Lola. And yes, I know for another group of you, the listeners, you love trying to decipher what are the lies and what is the truth from everybody around Lola at the time. But remember, just because something is interesting or confounding or gets your creative juices flowing doesn't mean it's relevant to figuring out what happened. Prime example, Brian Schaefer the endless analyzing of how he left the ugly tuna has not brought anyone closer to finding him. For me, I think if any of those people besides John Riker had anything helpful to say, and if they're still alive, they would have said it by now. 
This just feels like one of those people who don't know anything thrusting themselves into the center of investigations type of things. So yes, my opinion is that John knows what happened to Lola. Doesn't mean he killed her accidentally or planned. Doesn't necessarily mean he covered anything up. But our experience teaches us that jilted boyfriends, recent ex-lovers, statistically make very good suspects. And his story about coming back and Lola not being there is about as stereotypical of a the-man-said type of disappearance as there is. Yet, what still confuses me is the car. Given what we know about Lola, you would not think her car disappearing would be part of the narrative. But it is. It's very rare for a the-man-said type of disappearance to have a missing car. Hey, horrible men like to get rid of their women, but keep the cars. Although an exception could be the disappearance of Eric Franks, which technically is a the-woman-said type of disappearance. Surely all of you remember that his car was missing for quite a while, then was found intact and running just a couple years ago. So, what happened to Lola's car? Because although we've discovered how easy it is to make people disappear, making a vehicle go missing is a lot tougher. Then why would somebody take the time to do that? My first inclination is someone would make the car disappear too because doing so goes in line with the story the person has told investigators. I think this also means that this person would then put the car in a place that would support that person's story should the car be found. I think. If you'd like to hear and read what I have to further say about John, the party, Lola's missing car, and yes, even Dow Corning, and of course, Lola herself, please sign up at patreon.com forward slash unfoundpodcast to partake in the unfound blog. Until then, I leave the public theorizing up to you. And that's the program. Right now, while you are in your podcast platform, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever, give Unfound a five-star review, a thumbs up, whatever that platform allows. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've just finished this episode of Unfound.